If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn with me to the book of 1 Kings. We're going to be in 1 Kings now. We've been going through a series called The Broken King, Exploring the Life of David. And so far, we've been in 1 and 2 Samuel, so you're probably wondering why we're going to 1 Kings. Uh, today, we're going to see where David's life comes to an end. Um, so we're going to fast forward from what we talked about last week uh, to seeing David's life end today. Next week, we're going to start a new series throughout Christmas called The Perfect King. And we're going to be looking at the life of Jesus, and uh, that's one that I'm extremely excited about as well. Um, but today we're going to be finishing our series, The Broken King. We're going to be in 1 Kings. We're actually going to be in chapter 2, so you can go ahead and turn there as well. Some of you, you've asked about different stories of the life of David. Um, we obviously did not cover every single story of David's life. Uh, for an example, one of the most popular is the story of David and Mephibosheth. So many of you, you want to hear that. Um, there are deeper studies that you can take so that you can hear that. We might come back to it later. Um, but if you're looking for a deeper study, I wanted to recommend one, um, and that is J.D. Greer has preached a series on the life of David that is 21 weeks long. Um, J.D. mentored myself, and throughout our series, I borrowed uh, two, actually, sermons, the flow of those sermons from him. Uh, so you'll see that it heavily influenced what we talked about. But at the same time, I think it's a great study for you to go and get a holistic understanding of what the life of David looks like. Now, there's some other studies and some other books that are written about David's life, but that's one that has influenced me, that has influenced our study, so I felt like I could point you in that direction. But last week, we, uh, our hearts were shattered, weren't they? Um, we saw this king that had come to occupy the throne of Israel that we had waited for, that the people of Israel wanted. All of a sudden, this king who we have known nothing but good things about, all of a sudden comes to a crashing halt uh, because of the sins, the egregious acts that he committed last weekend. Many of you weren't here last weekend. It was Thanksgiving, so I hope that you enjoyed your time with your family. Uh, but to catch you up on that, what we saw last week was that, that lust filled the heart of David. And David up to this point has kind of been a perfect king for us. But last week we really saw why he was, why he was a broken king which is why the whole series is titled The Broken King. Um, but his heart was filled with lust. And then after it was filled with lust, that lust led him to not only commit adultery, but then to commit murder. So what we saw was one sin after another sin after another sin in David's life. And that left us with a bit of a sour taste in our mouth towards what David has become. Today we're fast-forwarding. You're going to see that throughout the rest of David's life, there was a lot of consequences to his actions. Uh, but not only were there consequences, um, but David still tried to live in a way that honored and pleased the Lord. You can see that throughout uh, his life before his fall to Bathsheba, and even a little bit after his fall to Bathsheba. Namely, the next chapter where Nathan, his pastor, comes and confronts him. We talked about this at the end of our time together last week. Um, David has his confrontation with Nathan and then repents and writes Psalm 51. Uh, many of you are familiar with that psalm. I think it needs to be a psalm that we read uh, to proactively keep us from falling prey to sin, not really reactively as a response to sin. Uh, but in David's case, it certainly was a bit reactive. So we're fast-forwarding today to the end of his life. We're going to be in the book of 1 Kings. Now, 1 Kings is an interesting book because it begins by saying this about David, that he was old and advanced in years. Now, if you know the life of David, you know that David died when he was 70 years old. Now, just for clarity's sake, I did not say old was 70. 
that's the author of 1 Kings. So if you're here today and you take offense to that, take it up with God, not me, because that's what the Bible says. So he's old and he's advanced in years. And what the author wants us to know is that the life of David was not easy. Like David's life was hard, wasn't it? I mean, think about the way that you and I were introduced to David. David was a little boy, a runt, the Bible tells us, and he was stuck in the middle of this field to tend sheep. Now, David didn't just sign up for that. David didn't just one day say, you know what I want to do for a living as a young boy? I just want to go hang out with the sheep all day, all night, in the middle of the field, by myself, just me and a flock of sheep. That wasn't what David wanted. The reason David was assigned that task is because not only did his parents, but also his siblings, they considered him to be insignificant in their own household. So as a result of feeling insignificant or being insignificant in his own household, he's thrown out into the middle of this field to tend sheep. On top of that, not only did David, uh, his life start hard, but uh, a vast majority of his life, where did he spend it? He spent it in caves, in the desert, in the wilderness. Now, I don't know about you, uh, but sometimes when I hear the word wilderness, I think of the word forest or rainforest. I think a lot of trees and, you know, a lot of water. Well, that's not the wilderness, biblically speaking. Like, it's literally a desert, and there is no water. Um, So David spent a vast majority of his life in the wilderness, in the desert, in various caves, but what was he doing? Did he just enjoy going sightseeing and decided to go into the deserts to, to, to ch- check out like different caves? No. He was literally fleeing for his life. The king, King Saul, who happens to also be his father-in-law, wanted David dead. And he was seeking to devour David, to put an end to his life. And you know the story. David goes into several different caves. He has opportunities to take Saul's life, but he chooses not to do it. David's life was not easy. It was hard. Not only did King Saul want David dead, but who else wanted David dead? What about Absalom? Remember that story? David's third son. He wanted his daddy dead. He wanted to occupy the throne. You even see Absalom rebel against his king and his own dad. Then towards the end of his life, we learn here in 1 Kings chapter 1, that David is now plagued by some health issue. The Bible tells us that he couldn't get warm, that he stayed cold. Many of you on blood thinners, you know exactly what that's like. You you, you feel like you can't ever get warm. You constantly stay cold. Well, that was the life of David towards the end. So he's trying to find different things that he can do to keep himself warm. But even in the midst of this health issue that he has, the Bible tells us that we're told about another rebellion from another son. His son, Adjaniah, or Adonijah. Absalom rebelled against him earlier. Joab, the leader of the army, ended up killing Absalom. Now in 1 Kings 1, Adonijah attempts to take the throne, and he tries to rally the people together to do what? He knows that his daddy's about to die, and he also knows that he's next in line to occupy the throne. So if I can rally the people around me, and therefore me, then when my dad dies, hopefully the throne will be mine to occupy, and I will now be the king of Israel. Well, God had a different plan. You know the story. God told David that Solomon would occupy the throne, but but Solomon wasn't in line to occupy the throne. Adonijah stood in the way. So what you see in David's life is David's life wasn't easy. In fact, David's life was pretty difficult. 
David's life was hard. Think about this. They say you can tell a lot about a man's life by looking at his kids. Now, I don't think you can tell everything about a man's life by looking at his kids, but you can tell a lot about a man's life by looking at his kids. Now, just so that you know, I know you're already judging me because you know my kids. <laughs> That's cool. Kind of set myself up for that one. We only want you to know we have two kids. We'll tell you which two they are. That's for a later day. Um, but seriously, think about his kids. You have his first child was who? It was Amnon, right? Amnon was David's firstborn son. What did Amnon do? He raped his half-sister, Tamar. And who killed Amnon because he raped his half-sister? Absalom. So the brother killed the brother because of an egregious act that he did against their half-sister. That's how Amnon died. We know the second son was Chiliab. Okay, Chiliab. Some people refer to him as Daniel, but I don't want you to confuse him with the prophet Daniel, so I'm going to use the term Chiliab. Uh, for the sake of clarity today, to refer to him. Now, we don't know a whole lot about how Chiliab died, okay? So we don't have a whole lot to, to judge by there. Now, the third son was Absalom. You remember Absalom? How did Absalom die? Yes. Like, y'all can't hear. I can hear. She's feeding me today. But Joab, we learned earlier uh, that Joab killed Absalom. You remember the story? Absalom's riding a mule through a forest. And he gets tied up between an oak tree, and he's just kind of hangering there, suspended there. In that tree, the mule goes on, so he's there. Joab's people come alongside, and they see him hanging in the tree. They didn't know what to do with him, so they went and told Joab. And Joab's like, well, did you kill him? Did you do anything with him? And they said no, so Joab went. And when Joab shows up, he takes three spears, as if one wasn't enough, right? Three javelins, and he sticks them through the heart of Absalom. This is Joab, who was David's right-hand man, the leader of David's army. Joab is now killing David's son. Absalom dies. But this would have put Adonijah in position to be successor of the throne. But we learn in 1 Kings 1, like I said, that God had a different plan. God's plan was for Solomon to occupy the throne, not Adonijah. Solomon was not necessarily the natural choice of the throne, but Solomon was certainly... God's choice for the throne. So what can we take away from that even before we get into our text this morning? Something simple. God often works in mysterious ways. Ma'am, sir, you and I would do ourselves well if we understood that God does not always work the way that we think he should naturally work. That God sometimes and God often works in very mysterious ways. God goes against what we think. God goes against what we would desire. God goes against the way that we would do it. And he does this because he has a better way, a more fulfilling way, a way that will not only be for your good but will also be for his glory. And sometimes we can't explain the ways of God, right? You've walked through this in your own individual lives, things that you think should happen that don't happen, and you feel like, why would God do that. Here's the beauty about God. Even though God does things mysteriously, even though he does things a different way than we would, the beauty about God is God invites us into his plans. If we would just surrender and submit and quit fighting against the current of God's will and trajectory, he invites us into his plans. More often than not, the way that God works is beyond our comprehension, but he does invite us to trade our plans with his plans. Isaiah 55 talks about this when it says, his ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Some of you, you have found seasons in your life where you had to cling to that biblical scripture. 
Certainly the ways of God weren't the ways of yours, and his thoughts weren't your thoughts, but certainly they were also higher than your ways and greater than your thoughts. The truth of the matter is that when you explore the pages of Scripture, what you're going to see is that you and I will not always understand God. And that's a beautiful thing. Because if we did understand God, he really wouldn't be omniscient. If we did understand God, he wouldn't really be a God worth serving. The fact that God's ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts actually means that God is higher than we are, that he is superior to us, and that we exist in humble submission and adoration to him. But can I tell you something this morning, church? Here's the beauty of this. You and I don't want to chase a God that we can explain. We want to chase a God that we can exalt, right? I mean, if you and I could chase a God that we could explain, that would actually have an endpoint to it. But since we're chasing a God that we can exalt, the beauty of the text is this, that even when things don't make sense in our individual lives, we still have reason to praise. And and even when things happen in our life that we would not have necessarily planned for ourselves, and we find ourselves a little down in the dumps because it didn't go exactly the way that we wanted it to, we still have reason to praise. This brings us to chapter 2 of 1 Kings. David is going to give some final words to his son before he passes away. So this is David talking to Solomon, who's soon to be king. We've set this text up with that. But here's what I want you to hear. Dad's in the room. I want you to picture for just a moment that you're laying literally on your deathbed, and this is the last chance you get to talk to your spouse or to your kids. The things that you say, whether you want them to or not, are going to carry more gravity and more weight than I care to admit. Because this is the last conversation that you're going to have together. And David understood that. Solomon understood that. They're at the end of David's life. This is one of the last conversations recorded between daddy and son. David the king and soon-to-be king's son, Solomon. So with that weight and with that gravity, we're going to read 1 Kings chapter 2 and verse 1. It says this. When David's time to draw near... He commanded Solomon his son, saying, or Tadai drew near. He commanded his son Solomon, saying, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. Now that's an interesting word choice. I'm about to go the way of all the earth. What he's basically saying there is, what is the way of all the earth? It's death. Okay, this was the Old Testament way of saying, death is an inevitable reality. I'm going to return the way that I came. I'm leaving. I'm dying. That's what David is saying there. Now the New Testament kind of has a little different way of saying this. It's really, I'm not going the way of the earth. I'm going the way of the Lord. It means to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. Uh, but at this point, this is what they would understand, that the inevitable reality of life is that everyone who was born actually dies. And because of that, David's saying, I've, my time has come to an end. Okay. Now in some of the final words of David's life, he exhorts Solomon to do two things. That's what we're going to look at today. And his final words to Solomon He exhorts him to do two things. The first thing that he says is this. He says, be a man. This is daddy talking to his boy. His boy, namely, who's going to occupy the throne. And some of the best piece of advice that he could give to his son was this simple. Hey, be a man. He says in verse 2, be strong 
and show yourself a man. I love this. I love it because David is calling out the man in his son. David is saying to his son what would not only be unpopular in his culture, but what would be really unpopular in our culture. He's saying to his young boy, it's okay to be a bit masculine. It's okay to be a man, and I want you to be strong, and I want you to be a man. Why? Because David, or because Solomon, you're about to be king. And the people that you're going to lead, they need a man on the throne. They need someone who knows who they are, who's going to be strong, who's going to be courageous, and who's not just going to die down and buy into every single opinion that comes his way. Church family, the, the truth can be said about us as well. We live in a place where masculinity is no longer a good thing. But you and I, we have to understand that masculinity is actually a biblical concept. It's a biblical idea. Dads, we need to be teaching our sons to be men. You and I, as, as men and women of the faith, certainly as men of the faith, we cannot buy into the idea that masculinity is toxic. You know what toxic masculinity is? It's the notion that anything manly is toxic. It's, it's exactly what's being pushed on us right now by the, by the culture in which we live. Let me give you a few examples. How is this being encouraged around us? Um, Lil Nas X. Some of you have no idea who Lil Nas X is, okay? He's an American rapper. Lil Nas X took to his Instagram page and to social media and posted himself as a pregnant man. Inviting the idea in, in boys everywhere that it's okay if boys were to get pregnant. He posted pictures of himself with a, quote, baby bump that People Magazine later revealed was a fake baby bump. But nonetheless, his objective was still a bit fulfilled. What about Harry Styles? Harry Styles is popular for the band One Direction. Again, a popular band, has a lot of followers. Harry Styles did what? He was the first person to post, the first man to pose alone on the front cover of Vogue magazine. What was Harry Styles wearing? A dress with women's accessories. Teaching kids and all of his followers that it's okay to step into your femininity a little bit, even if you, quote, are a man. Just this past week, the Biden administration, what did they propose? That conservative Christian families could no longer adopt or foster children. Why? Why are they proposing this? It's laid out in the proposal. Go read it. For what? Unless they conform to the world's way of sexual orientation and gender identity. It's not appropriate any longer, even in our own country, we're fighting this, to teach men, boys, to be men. And here, years ago, you have David sitting down with his son, telling his son, we need men. And I want you to be one of them. In fact, I would say there's nothing more toxic in all the world than allowing culture around us to, to define what God has already defined. David says to his son, prove yourself to be a man. You know what he's saying there? He's saying, don't be a sissy. And I know some of you don't like that. You know how I know people don't like that? 
Because I say don't be a sissy to my son River, and I get looks. It doesn't matter if we're in the public or in the church. People are like, why would he say that? Because, listen, I don't want my child, he's raised around three sisters that are all older than him. I don't want River to grow up thinking it's okay to whine if you scratch, you know, you scratch your knee. I want you to get up and carry on. So don't be a sissy, be a man, and, pl- and go play the game. Like, you know what I mean? Um, now, my girls, I'm, I'm totally different. You come to daddy, I will hold you, I will love on you, I will whatever. I will doctor you up. But... I did not expect an applause. <laughs> but we do need to remember that David was a man's man, right? I mean, listen, he fought off lions and bears with, with a bunch of weapons, right? No. This dude fought off lions and bears with his bare hands. I mean, David was pretty, pretty, pretty bold in everything that he did. He spent most of his childhood indoors or outdoors. On the Nintendo or off the Nintendo? Or the phone, I should say, right? He was a warrior, David was. I mean, David jumped at the opportunity to go engage in a fight. Now listen, men, I'm not encouraging you to do that, all right? I'm not encouraging you to think, hey, I can go fight a guy, because when Georgia beats, or when Alabama beats Georgia, you know, a lot of you wanted to do that. <laughs> Let's not do it. It's not appropriate. But, but David was a man's man, like, right? He wanted to engage in battle. But here's the beauty of this. This, this, is, this tells you how ridiculously manly <laughs> David was, Okay? Think about this. David goes and he fights Goliath. He takes this slingshot and he throws a stone, one stone, hits Goliath in the head. Goliath falls over and he dies. And that's literally where the story ends in my children's Bible. But you know the rest of the story. What does David go and do? David goes and decapitates him. And then he walks for two miles with a head in his hand to go take it to King Saul. And you can just draw the image for yourself. All right, that's pretty gothic. That's pretty gory. But just imagine that. Like, this dude is savage. This dude is, he's a man. That's what he is. And he takes his head all the way to King Saul. But my question is, why do you think David is telling Solomon to be a man? Like, why is that even important to David? Why would David waste his breath, the last moments of his life, telling his son this sentiment? It's simple. Because David knew that Solomon was about to be king. And David knew that when he grew up, God took him through a pasture, and God God took him through a a war with Goliath in the valley while Philistines were on one side and Israelites were on the other. And you know the events, we just talked about them. God took him through caves and deserts. God knew, or David knew, man, God worked on my life to mold and to shape me in the man that I am today. And I became Israel's second but arguably greatest king outside of Jesus. And if you have any chance, Solomon, to do the same, you're going to have to live a lot like I lived. But the truth is, Solomon, you were raised in a palace, not in a pasture. The truth is, Solomon, things were given to you that weren't given to me. You lived a life that I wasn't able to live. People pampered you like they gave you everything. You grew up in royalty. I did not. But if you're going to survive by being the king of Israel and occupying the throne and listening to God and lead them in the right direction, you're going to have to grow up and be a man. So David understood that's the first thing first. Now, you ladies in the room, you're thinking, what's that got to do with me? I can't be a man. Take take his first words. Be strong. Be courageous. 
in the face of your battles, in the face of the things that God has put in front of you, the same words would be true. Be strong. In leadership, there are two inevitable things that must exist. And in many ways, I think David's encouraging them in the life of Solomon. What are those two inevitable things? First, we say this in our staff, okay? And you, you get a sneak peek into what we say behind the scenes a little bit, okay? It requires us to have thick skin and a soft heart. And leadership, biblical leadership, leading God's people requires two things, thick skin and a soft heart. Thick skin because you're going to be criticized. People are not always going to understand you. Why? Because God works in mysterious ways. The things that God leads us to do a lot of times aren't going to be the logical, natural things that we, you know, people, the, the, the vast majority of people want to do. So you're going to need thick skin. You're going to have to feel complaint. You're going to have to let it bounce off of you. You're going to have to engage. But you also need a soft heart because you need to learn what it means to listen and to hear people and to empathize with people. And even if you don't agree with them and even if you don't like what they're saying, you still got to listen. You still got to hear them because God might be using them to show you something that you currently don't see. So we tell our staff all the time, in leadership, we have to have thick skin, but we also have to have a soft heart. So David here, he's saying, you need meekness. What is meekness? It's power, but it's power under control. Not only do you need meekness, but you need confidence. And what kind of confidence do you need? You need confidence that has enough mixture of humility in it that people won't see your confidence as arrogance. They'll see it as humble confidence to lead. And David's imploring, exhorting his son to carry out these two things. And then there's a second thing that David says. Not only do I want you to be a man, Solomon, but there's a second thing. Be obedient. Some of you might like the word faithful. Be faithful. But be obedient. He says in verse 3, And keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, and his testimonies, as, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn. In many ways, what I like about this text is David is connecting manhood to obedience. And I think I could say it like this. The most manly thing in the world for us as men to do is to obey God. It's to obey God. You want to be more attractive to your wife? Oh, man, get on your face before God and follow hard after him. I promise you, she'll be attracted by that. In fact, we often say the most attractive thing on the planet is a heart that is totally surrendered to King Jesus, following truly and heartily and faithfully after him. So the most manly thing some of us could do today is to make a decision in our life that we're going to faithfully obey the Lord Jesus in all manners of our life. There's nothing more manly than obedience to God. Obedience to God is not only something that men are called to do. Obedience to God is something that everyone, everywhere is called to do. Moses talks about this in Deuteronomy chapter 11. How does he say it? He says, if you obey God, you will be blessed. And then later, it's said like this in John 15, or 14, 15. If you love me, what does Jesus say? Then you'll obey me. You'll obey my commands. It's easy for us to think that obedience is necessary for salvation, and it's not. In no way is anybody in the Bible trying to say that obedience is a requirement or necessity for salvation. Instead, obedience is evidence of salvation. Because you're a child of God, you want to obey him. You want to love him. 
and a way that in which you love him is through obedience to him. Again, full circle. These are David's last words to his son. His life could be taken at any minute. He may take his last breath, last breath any day. And he spends perhaps one of his last conversations with his little boy saying two things. I want you to be a man. And I want you to be obedient. There's two things we need to understand about obedience. When we're obedient, really our obedience leads to two inevitable realities in our life. I'll talk about those real quick. First, obedience leads to living for God. This sounds pretty self-explanatory, I know. Very simple, but also very true. Obedience leads to living for God. It says in verse 3, and keep the charge of the Lord your God. For the most part, David lived his life in a way that brought much honor and much glory to God. In fact, the story of David, fall, uh, the story of David's fall that we covered last week helps us see, really, that David's human just like us. Otherwise, we would think that David's unlike us and incapable of falling. But the Bible wants us to see that David was a broken king for this particular reason. I believed, in fact, that David learned a lot through his disobedience about the importance of being obedient. And some of you have had to learn the hard way too. You've learned lessons through your disobedience that help you know how to be obedient. And I know I keep alluding to this and, and I don't want to draw too much attention to it. Uh, but I, I loved how Kirby talked about this last night for all you Georgia fans. He says, sometimes the only way in life you'll ever know where you really are is by taking a loss. Loss is necessary for growth. Disobedience happens sometimes in our lives so that we can see where we really are in relation with God. And it reminds us that he's in a place unlike us and that we should be striving and seeking after him. Disobedience leads to calamity. It leads to a messy life. We see that all through the Old Testament. We see that in the New Testament. When we choose to disobey, when we choose to do things our own way, it leads to a life of trouble. But obedience always leads to a life of life. So obedience leads to living for God, but there's a second thing that obedience does. Obedience also leads to loving God's word. Obedience leads to living for God, but obedience also leads to loving God's word. Look at verse 3 again. Walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, and his testimonies as it is written in the law of Moses. The law of Moses were the scriptures that he would have known. David is telling Solomon to look to the book for guidance. I love how, I guess it might have been Adrian Rogers who used to say, open the Bible, hear God speak. You've heard that. When you open the Bible, you hear God speak. And what Solomon is learning from his daddy is, in order to hear from God, you've got to be in the book. You've got to learn the heart of God by studying the scriptures of God, by getting in them and not leaving until you hear God speak to you. I love how David says to Solomon, when you do, do these two things, when you obey God the way that you're supposed to, and, and you start living for God, you love his word, there's one inevitable result. He says that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn. Now, why would that be true? Why would it be true that David would tell Solomon 
that if you obey, faithfully follow the Lord your God, that you would see prosperity wherever you go and wherever you turn. It's simple. It's because when you exist and live in obedience to the Father, you are starting to live and exist in a way that w- in which you were designed to live. When God created man and woman in the garden, there was no sin in the world, and there was perfect harmony between the two of them. Sin is what distorted that picture. And God is saying that when you obey me, you're existing back in that perfect harmony with me. You're walking with me. You're talking with me. You're, you're operating up under the banner by which you were first designed. We are told to obey the Lord our God. The living, or it's living in a way that we are created to live. Let me say it this way. Real courage or strength, regardless of gender, comes from being rightly related to Jesus. That's what we need to understand, that real courage, regardless of man or woman, boy or girl, comes from being rightly related to Jesus. Listen, in the culture in which you live, it is a courageous act to obey, to obey God. It's a courageous act. Because oftentimes, the things that God tells you to do are going to go against the culture around you. And it's going to mean that you're going to have to stand sometimes by yourself. And it's going to mean that sometimes when you stand, you will suffer consequences that are not fair to you as a child of God. But regardless, David would say to you, be strong. Anchor your feet in the truth of God's word and do not move. And secondly, be faithful. Know that you only exist for an audience of one person, and that is the Lord Jesus who occupies the throne. But man, sir, despite David's plea for obedience, you know what Solomon would do? Solomon would begin to chase after his own impulses. Solomon would choose earthly pleasures as a precedence over faithful pursuit of Jesus. And in Solomon's life, chasing the wrong women led to chasing the wrong gods. You know the story. He had a thousand wives. And as a result of those thousand wives, the Bible explicitly says that they caused Solomon to turn his heart away from the Lord. This would eventually lead to the kingdom being divided. And Solomon not reigning over all of it anymore. When Solomon followed God, what happened to the kingdom? The kingdom prospered. When Solomon disobeyed God, what happened to the kingdom? The kingdom found trouble. Ma'am, sir, it doesn't take a genius to figure this out. And I don't say that as a jerk. I say that truly. Think about this. If you feel like chaos is in your family and you feel like discord and division is between your relationships, there's a good chance that's coming from somewhere. It could be that that there's a heart that's not chasing hard after God. It could be that we've put precedence in earthly pleasures over kingdom pleasures. It could be that we've reoriented our life in such a way that Jesus, who was at the forefront of everything, is now in the back seat of everything. It could be that we have positionally 
put ourselves in the driver's seats of our own individual lives. And when we do that, calamity and trouble and chaos and confusion, they, they, they break out in our homes, in our relationships, in our churches, in our world. So what's the fix? I'm a fixer. Maybe you're a fixer. It's to come back to God. Because the beauty of Jesus is all who call upon him, he says, will be saved. And those who are already children of God, when you call upon him, he says, if you just confess, he's a faithful and true God, and he will forgive. And I'm not trying to guess that every single problem in your life is directly connected to disobedient acts. I'm not trying to say that at all. But what I am saying is that if you look at scripture long enough, a lot of times the calamity and trouble that comes into our life is a direct result of the disobedient acts of our own heart. And it would do ourselves well to at least put ourselves against God's word to say, is that true about us? Why do I tell you all of this today? We walked through a series called The Broken King, really because we wanted to highlight the kingship of Jesus. You might have noticed that on our baptism shirts, we have Jesus as king. You might have noticed that on the wall over here, we have Jesus as king. And we've used this kingship language uh, in many ways to replace the lordship language that many of you are used to. Okay, I grew up in a church that, you know, unless Jesus is Lord or Savior, however you want to refer to it. But we wanted to highlight the kingship of Jesus, that when he sits on the throne, that one, everything that he does is for our good, whether we like it, don't like it, would have chosen it or if it's in a completely different uh, pattern or way that we would have ever thought that, that we would have, a place that we would have been. He's on the throne. He has the right to rule. And as such, we are his servants that are here to serve him. Humbly serve him. But here's the beauty of this. Jesus calls us servant, but Jesus also calls us friend. And not only does Jesus call us friend, but he calls us sons and daughters of his. You know what that means? It means that we are co-heirs with him. It doesn't just mean that, that he sits on the throne to rule and to reign over us. He invites us into that, to live in the way that he lives. And when we do, we get to enjoy the life that he promises. My question to you today is, do you know Jesus? Do you know him? As we conclude this entire series, are you faithfully obeying him? Can you really say that I love God while simultaneously know that there's areas in your life that you're disobeying him? Ma'am, sir, maybe you came here for the first time and you recognize, you know what, the distance between me and God is so, so big. And it's big because sin exists, and I continue to flirt and flounder in that sin. And the only thing that can close that gap is not your own obedience. It's the obedience of Jesus who came and submitted not to his own will and way, but to the will and the way of the Father. Went to the cross and laid his life there, not for his own sin, but for your sin. And gave his life for you, so that if you would place your faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus, you'd be forever reconciled to the Father. Today, maybe for the first time you're recognizing, I need to call upon Jesus to be not only my Savior, but to be my Lord, to be my King.